Hello everyone, it's November 27th, 2018. This week, Virgin Galactic is one step closer to Launcher 1 launching, and we talk to Richard Witherspoon about Osiris Rex, King of Asteroid Sample Retrieval. That's what Osiris Rex means. Probably not actually. Anyway, liftoff. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 186 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Turkey. I mean, Ben. Yeah, you're Turkey, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, I'm and thinking I'm... about Turkey right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm Turducken Dennis. <laughs> did you, oh, did, Dennis, did you have a Turducken? No, oh. I actually had uh, Italian seafood. <laughs> you had Italian seafood. <laughs> was in Vegas. Okay, so that's like what, clams and linguine or something? Uh, yeah, a lot of crawfish. Oh. Uh, but yeah, it was good. <laughs> I got to admit. You went to Las Vegas, so you got fancy food. Yeah, yeah. We actually uh, we actually made some of the money to offset the really? overly exorbitant dinner. But <laughs> How much did you make? Well, I won't tell you how much the dinner cost, but we won $300. <laughs> and so, Ooh, that's pretty good. That's an expensive dinner, right. So you knew when to walk away. That was yeah, yeah. good on you. <laughs> I told you guys that uh, last time I was in Las Vegas, I was there for work and my wife came with me. And she texted me at one point. She's like, hey, I just made enough money to cover my plane ticket. And then like 15 minutes later, she's like, I lost it all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Um, she she yeah. ended up making, I don't know, probably, some, probably something like $300. But it was like off of uh, penny slots, which is like amazing. Oh, wow. So it tells you how much she was playing. Yeah, penny slots are my go-to for when I'm just sad and have lost all my money and so i'll just <laughs> milk a dollar bill and try to get the free drinks and just wallow and yeah the free drinks are the real payoff there right <laughs> yeah i guess that's the one reason to go to vegas that you do come out on top no matter what if you i guess don't gamble but take advantage of all the free food and drinks huh if you're disciplined yeah if you're yeah if you're disciplined so i made a turkey at home and uh i i have to plug this i use the chef steps uh sous vide turkey recipe the two mate well they're like three major factors. Like first it's, you know, sous vide, so it's not going to be dry. And this is a 24 hour sous vide. And I think I'm going to start doing all of my poultry long-term because most of the time when I do poultry sous vide, it's only an hour. And I think I might start bumping stuff up to like overnight sous vide cooks. So how do you sous vide a whole turkey? Right. So I actually butchered the turkey. Um, so I had the light meat and the dark meat in separate vacuum bags. The second real key bit here is uh, fresh herbs, which is like obvious, but um, I mm -hmm. used um, uh, rosemary, sage, and thyme, which are like the Thanksgiving poultry herbs. And so those really, I mean, really, really soaked into the entire turkey. It was fantastic. Um, and then since, uh, well, and then, and then also in there went a brine. So they basically had a 24-hour brine. Then the dark meat was cooked at a higher temperature. The white meat was cooked at a lower temperature. And it just, oh, it was so good. But yeah, so David, the uh, the fact that I butchered the turkey means that I had a turkey carcass the day before Thanksgiving. So mm -hmm. I actually put the turkey carcass um, in a pot with some floppy celery I had in the fridge, um, some mushrooms, some herbs, and, you know, just all the all the good things. Put them all in a pot and I stuck it in the oven for eight hours at like 200 degrees, maybe 180. So it was like the best stock. I mean, it's serious. It was like a turkey soup is what this stock tasted like. Um, so I had like a gallon and a half worth of stock the day before. So my gravy was made out of the stock. My uh, stuffing 
was made out of this. I mean, it was just great. And then I've got like a huge Ziploc bag in the freezer frozen. And then I also froze some in a container for Reggie, my dog, because he loves chewing on frozen stock. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, most dogs like chewing on ice cubes, but oh my gosh, you guys. Reggie is a fancy pooch. Um, it's funny because it's, it's ice, but he eats it so fast that he doesn't leave a wet spot on the carpet. Wow. So you said that you butchered it, but you didn't kill it, right? You just tore it apart after no no okay. no i bought it at the store yeah yeah yeah, mm. yeah okay I, I, yeah i just want to make sure because you kept saying butcher i was like you didn't actually kill <laughs> and you know deplume a whole turkey right no 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 i, I would love to <laughs> i mean at, at one point in the future i'd like to oh my gosh you guys this turkey i, I told dennis this just before we started recording this mm. turkey is so good that i don't know if i've actually heated up more than like a slice or two because i just sit there and eat it out of the container right out of the fridge and it's so good it like there's no smoke in it but it almost tastes like ham like that sweetness that ham has Mm. Um, and it's like perfectly salty and perfectly herby and like even eating it cold out of the fridge i'm like humming as i'm eating it because i'm just like Mm -hmm. i have never had anything or or i've rarely had something that was this like intensely happy in my hands you know it's just like ah Mm -hmm. oh i get to eat this so good um so i mean seriously uh chef steps has got like a video and like an entire article and next year if you're listening to this next year if you have access to a sous vide machine uh, maybe ask for one for christmas this year i guess but oh my gosh like i'm gonna do this throughout the year i'm gonna buy a turkey every once in a while and replenish my turkey stock reserves and have turkey to to go in the fridge. it's so good i'm glad we're uh, recording this right before lunchtime <laughs> you need to do another podcast ben just uh the sous vide yeah, right. of ben or something <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, see, everybody needs to get into this because it's so, so, so easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is not a, di- it, yeah. it's so hard to screw up and just amazing results. If you're willing to put in like a little bit of prep work, that's all you need. So you guys ready to talk about Turkey? I mean, space. Space. Yeah. Let's talk about, no, just space. Just <laughs> <Turkey> history. <laughs> I suppose that the clue that you gave last week is somewhat Thanksgiving themed, which was uh, spread your wings. All right. So what is, uh, so who do we have for winners for this week in space flight history? <sighs> All right. Two winners, Law Loving and Chubby Turkosi. Congratulations, you guys. The clue from last week, like you said, David, was spread your wings. And this week in space flight history is the 1st of December, 2000. It was the launch of STS-97. So the clue spread your wings was interpreted in a very clever way. Both of our winners um, related it to R. Kelly's song, I Believe I Can Fly, which was played on board uh, as a wake up call for one mission day. Um, I hadn't even like considered that. My thought was uh, the P6 truss has got the first solar wings. So that's kind of what I was thinking. Also speaking of correct guesses, no shame, uh, but Chubby mentioned uh, that they use safer to fly around the station, which is also a good guess. Mm-hmm. Although that actually happened on STS 92 um, where they actually took safer. They were still tethered, but they drifted around and, and demonstrated that safer worked. As far yeah. as I know, safer has never been activated since STS 92, which is good because it means that we haven't put people's lives at risk. It's also bad because we need more jetpacks in the real world. And safer right now is the only jetpack we have. Yep. Mm. Um, so uh, STS-97 delivered this P6 truss. 
Um, so if people aren't familiar with how the trust numbering works, you start at the middle and that's Z1, and then attached to the leading edge of Z1 is S0. Then on either side of that is uh, P1 and S1 for port one and starboard one, and then P2 and S2 and P3 and S3. So Z1 sits on the Zenith port of Unity, Z, Z is for Zenith. Um, so that has to get installed first. Because uh, that's how everything else connects, and uh, you know, Z1 is where the um, the gyroscopes are, and Z1 actually has like pressurized volume inside of it. It's kind of a cool little nook that gets hidden or ignored a lot of time. Anyway, um, so Z1 is the first bit of the truss that gets delivered to ISS, but then after that, instead of going to S0 and then S and P1 and S and P2, they actually start with P6. So that's the very farthest part of the truss to the port side. And so the reason they brought one of the six segments in first is because it has its solar wings and now they can provide power to the station. So um, they install P6 to the top of Z1 and it points upwards instead of pointing you know, to the side like you normally would uh, imagine these things. It, it's really interesting because when it's there, it has both of its wings open but it can't rotate. So it's the only array that's ever been attached, the only solar array wing that has ever been attached to station without an alpha rotary joint, right? The Sarge, the solar alpha rotary joint allows the wings to rotate. So if you stick your arms out, fingers out like they're a wing, and you rotate your ulnus and radio? I don't know, but I know what you mean. <laughs> if you if you rotate around the longitudinal direction, yes, there um, you go, so that yeah. your palm is so that your palm is facing down then facing forward, that's the solar alpha rotary joint direction. And then of course the the uh, each of the arrays can also rotate uh, around their base. Anyway, all that to say that P6 was the only uh, solar array to be attached to station without a Sarge there to be able to rotate it. So it's kind of, it's kind of fixed. Um, it's also interesting because it's the only array to ever operate nominally with only one solar array wing with only one saw sticking out because as they installed additional wings, they had to suck in uh, each of those arrays uh, to make room for the other wings that get attached. Um, and then later on in 2007, um, they took it off of Z1 and attached it to P5, so it, you know into the place it normally would be. And what's interesting is when they did that, they you know had already sucked in the saws, and so then they had to redeploy them. And when they went to redeploy them, one of them got torn. I think it was the 6A array got torn. And so we've talked about that mission um, where they actually had to fix the tear. Um, using what they called cufflinks, and they were basically twist ties that they used to bridge this gap and, and keep the tear from propagating. Um, so if that sounds familiar, this is that solar array uh, before it was torn. I mean, it, you know, it's it's a fairly fairly routine ISS construction mission, but I just I love these arrays. I think they're beautiful, and I, I love the intricacy and the the movement that they have, you know. Oh yeah, you're not kidding. Those cufflinks really do look like twisty ties. Mm -hmm. That was an awesome little barely Thanksgiving themed this week in spaceflight history. So, <laughs> what is our clue for next week? I I really appreciate you making that Thanksgiving themed by mentioning <laughs> post fact, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next week in 2002, the clue is from Hermes to Jupiter. And this is a really tough clue. I'm not going to be surprised if nobody gets this one. Yes, I feel like I'm, I actually 
can begin with this one. Unlike no, most can't. of these clues. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you, Dennis, and I'm glad to share this podcast with you, but you have no idea what this is. Okay. <laughs> you can, next week, you can tell me if I was wrong, but I, I, I don't think I'm wrong here. I believe you. <laughs> like this, this I'm saying this because I think it's potentially a bad clue, but you know, we'll, we'll huh. see if anybody gets it from Hermes to Jupiter in 2002. Uh, if you think you know what that is about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Virgin orbit completes its captive carry test flight. So this is one more small step to getting something to orbit for Virgin Orbit. It is in the name, I just realized. <laughs> yeah, so this is a Boeing 747 that used to fly for Virgin Airways, right? I believe it had a mm -hmm. route. Yeah, it had commercial passengers and everything. Yeah, it was like London to New York or something like that. And it was pulled out of service, and now it's doing its thing for Virgin Orbit, and... They just did a captive carry test. So I guess this is one of several before they do a drop test. Yeah. So this flew out of uh, Victorville, California. It was an 80-minute flight. And what's interesting is that we knew that a captive carry test was coming up. But, you know, we only know that they're flying when somebody tells us uh, that they saw them taking off or when we see their uh, flight registration. And in this case, uh, the, you know, the flight registry doesn't say anything about a captive carry because as far as FAA is concerned, it's all one vehicle with, you know, with payload. Um, mm -hmm. FAA is really going to care when they start dropping things off of the <laughs> aircraft. Um, yep. But uh, an eyewitness actually saw, you know, uh, a rocket shaped thing underneath the wing when it was taking off. And so we kind of got a, a early heads up. And so my initial reaction was, oh, this is a mass simulator. But then later statements from the company refer to it as a rocket. Speaking of statements, uh, Dan Hart, the chief executive of Virgin Orbit, called it a picture perfect flight and indicated they were getting data from the aircraft from the pylon that attaches to the rocket and from the rocket itself. So it sounds like, yeah, it, it is actually a rocket. And yeah, this is kind of kind of a short uh, news item here, but I think this is really cool. Uh, I love dropping rockets off of airplanes. Yeah, well, I mean, they haven't <laughs> dropped it yet. But the thing is, they are going to do a drop test. And so at that point, it must be a mass simulator, right? Because it says that this, this drop test is just going to impact on the desert floor and you don't want right. to waste a perfectly good rocket. Yeah. Yeah. Expensive. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, so, so Dennis, you're kind of you're kind of interested in this as well, right? So, I was surprised about how asymmetric it was, since they only had the one rocket under the one wing. And I looked into it a little bit, and it turns out that that was something that was a common uh, feature for 747s, where they could actually carry extra engines there. And all you got to do is just in the flight programming account for that. And during takeoff, uh, which is really the only time that tends to change the. Uh, aerodynamics of this plane all that much and then um you're good and so before in the early days this was evidently how 747 engines were shuttled around they would just strap on a fifth engine kind of mm -hmm. tucked in where the uh where launcher one is and so they kind of already knew that they had this there and they just had to basically do some engineering modifications for dropping it because yeah you, know, you don't want the <laughs> 747 engine drop yeah <laughs> yeah so it's it's cool they already had that pile on there ready to go i had forgotten that that is how you move large engines around is that you just strap them right onto the wing and i think that that's like still done today that's the best way to move an engine from somewhere far away to somewhere else from what i've seen it's it's less common 
but it still is done. So at this point, there's no exact date for when they will launch into orbit, but uh, it looks like at the earliest, but not very likely in December, but probably at least the first quarter of next year, possibly even January. So just a couple months and we might be looking at a launch of 13 CubeSats into a polar orbit aboard Launcher 1. That's pretty cool. All right, let's do some short and sweet. We got a long short and sweet. So we have Crew Dragon's test flight scheduled. The first flight from Pad 39A since shuttle is now scheduled for January 7th. Three flights will occur before Crew Dragon can begin regular crew transfer missions. First, in January, the uncrewed Demo-1 mission will fly supplies to ISS, but more importantly, will demonstrate Dragon's on-orbit capabilities. Second, the long-delayed in-flight abort test. Finally, Demo-2 will fly two astronauts to station, and that's currently scheduled for next summer. Next up, China prepares for lunar lander. So on November 18th, two Beidou, or Beidou satellites were successfully launched into medium Earth orbit at an altitude of 21,500 kilometers. This paves the way for the upcoming launch of the Chang'e on December 7th and will be China's first ever attempt at landing on the far side of the moon. The Chang'e mission is targeting the Von Karman crater for its landing site. All transmissions from Chang'e will be relayed through the Chuechiao satellite positioned at the Earth-Moon L2 Lagrange point and one of the payloads on board the lander will be a collection of silkworm larvae. But I can't figure out what they're for. Yeah, well, no, we talked about this. It's, it's like a... The larvae and the the because right they need to have the plants like the leaves. But and yeah, so they'll both. But I thought that those things were not included. It was just the silkworm larvae. No, no, it's silkworm. It's Arabidopsis and potatoes and like a bunch of other stuff. All right, then we have a glimpse into SpaceX's spaceship testing. So an FCC license was filed for SpaceX's Boca Chica facility this week, presumably covering the quote unquote grasshopper tests of the BFR spaceship. This license covers the maximum number of plants tests and their test regime is likely to be a little less strenuous. Uh, three times a week they can fly a hundred second 500 meter tests is what they've licensed for and then once a week uh, six minute tests could take the vehicle as high as 5,000 meters. Previously SpaceX has said that these tests could happen as early as late next year. And finally NASA picks a landing site for Mars 2020 rover. NASA announced on Monday that the Mars 2020 rover will be landing on or near Yezero Crater. The crater is 30 miles wide and about 1,600 feet deep. Based on satellite data, it is believed the crater was filled with water to a depth of over 800 feet between 3.5 and 3.8 billion years ago. The site was selected from four finalists. These, in turn, were whittled down from over 60 possible landing sites. The Yezero landing site features cliffs, boulders, and sand traps. However, Mars 2020 will use its terrain relative navigation system to avoid these hazards on final descent to the surface. Yay. That's awesome. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week, we just have one uh, cool little thing that we want to talk about, which is, uh, well, the old-fashioned term would be an EP uh, that is being released by Tim Dodd, but we might call it just a collection of songs on YouTube that you could listen to. No, he, he calls it a seven-song EP, so. Oh, he does? Okay, yeah, cool. I like that. This is so cool because, uh, you know, Tim Dodd does this excellent music. This is the first time he's actually released an album. And so all these, I don't think there are any new songs. I think these are all songs that have been playing on his Twitch stream, but they're, they're all, old, you know, favorites really really good 
You can buy them on Spotify or on iTunes. You can uh, buy them on Google Play Music. You can listen to them for free on Spotify and YouTube. YouTube is a great place to listen to them because he got a lot of footage to play behind the music, which is really cool. And yeah, I mean, throw some money at him if you can, because um, he's so talented and he he will repay your money in value. You know, anything that you give to him mm. is only going to get turned into good entertaining content. And then we have a little treat. We're going to play one of his songs at the end of the show after our outro. I, I shot him a message and he said that would be fine. So you guys just going off of the titles, you guys really liked Astronaut Beach House, right? Yeah, it's just well, that's just going oh, yeah. off the titles. <laughs> okay, so let's go ahead and play uh, Astronaut Beach House. Stay tuned for that at the end of the show. Oh, did, did we mention the name of the, the name of the album? Oh, I don't think we did. So uh, like an idiot, I didn't mention the, the name of the album. It's Maximum Aerodynamic Pressure, which... I think it's a really great title. Yeah, that's about as nerdy of a title as you can get for an album. We have Richard Witherspoon, who is Mission Operations Systems Engineer at Lockheed Martin. And specifically, he's going to talk to us about OSIRIS-REx. So welcome to the show, Richard. Great. Thanks for having me here. Tell us a little bit about what you do with regard to OSIRIS-REx. Absolutely. Yeah. As a Missions Operations Systems Engineer, I'm responsible for overseeing the day-to-day execution of sequences on board the spacecraft. And my focus is primarily on getting the science done for the scientists at the University of Arizona and throughout the country. So they tell us what they want and which pictures they want and how to point the spacecraft. And we make sure that the spacecraft turns their instruments on at the right time, is pointed the direction that they want and gets the data. And then additionally, we make sure that we get that data down from the spacecraft and we monitor the health of the spacecraft on a daily basis to trend if there are any issues that we need to deal with. And we can also respond in real time if there are any issues on board the spacecraft. I'm curious, Richard, how much earlier do they have to have these commands sent to you in order for you to basically get everything kind of set up? Yeah, it's actually one of the trickier parts of this mission. Because we're operating around such a small body, we have to have the commanding for the spacecraft designed very close to when it actually executes on board the spacecraft. So the University of Arizona begins their science planning about eight weeks out from the execution of the sequence on board the spacecraft, and they send it to us three weeks prior to it actually executing. So between eight and three weeks, they're designing the plan, making sure that they get all the science that they want. Uh, They have to design it out to uh, two or three sigma, just in case the asteroid is not exactly in the field of view of the instrument. And then once they deliver it to us, we have... Uh, basically two weeks to test it at Lockheed Martin. Uh, We run it through our uh, software test labs to make sure it will execute the way that they want, that we don't have any uh, violations, such as putting the sun down the bore side of an instrument. And then we uh, radiate it to the spacecraft uh, one week prior to it executing. Uh, Basically, we uplink on a Friday, and then that week of science will begin executing Monday afternoon-ish. Uh, depending on what time zone you're in. Um, okay, so I guess before we get too much deeper, could you give us a quick overview of what OSIRIS-REx is and what its goals are? Um, I'm pretty sure all of our listeners are pretty familiar with OSIRIS-REx, but it's always worth talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so OSIRIS-REx is the first NASA mission to travel to an asteroid, uh, study it, retrieve a sample, and then return that sample back to Earth. And we're going to the asteroid that's known as Bennu, And we study for about two years, which includes coming up with shape models, understanding the chemical composition of the asteroid, 
seeing what the density of the asteroid is, and finding a spot that is safe for the spacecraft to come in to touch in order to collect the sample. Uh, then we back away, make sure that we actually have a sample, and return that sample back to Earth. And we're looking to get a minimum of 60 grams of regolith, which is the material the asteroid is made of, but we can bring back as much as two kilograms of regolith from the asteroid. So 60 grams to two kilograms, that's quite a difference. So why the huge disparity? Yeah. So the the range of the measurement, uh, the, the lower end of it, minimum of 60 grams, is we have to collect enough material that we can actually measure that we detected the material. And we do that by once we have collected the sample, we uh, use our TAGSAM arm and we put it out at its furthest reach and we spin the spacecraft and we're able to determine the change in rotational speed. And that tells us how much material we have. So we need a minimum of 60 grams just to make that measurement, uh, just due to the various errors and inaccuracies that exist in any system. And we can take up to two kilograms because of the size of the TAGSAM head itself. Where we don't know how much material we're going to get is because we don't know what Bennu is actually made of. So we believe that Bennu is uh, a loose collection of regolith on the surface. So rocks of various sizes from dust grains all the way up to what we're now seeing are some 60 meter boulders on the surface of the asteroid. We can collect particles that are up to two centimeters in size inside the TAGSAM head and of course two centimeters or smaller. And it just really depends on the actual site that we perform the tag operation at. So we might find that we land in a field of dust, or we might land in a field that has a significant number of rocks that are over two centimeters, and that will limit our collection because those big rocks just won't get captured by the head. So that adds up to a lot of the variability of the collection quantity. But in tests that we've done here on Earth, as well as in uh, zero-G aircraft, uh, we can pretty consistently collect up to two kilograms if the head lands flat on the surface and the regolith is of the size and particle distribution that we are hoping to find there. And you have the option to dip back down and, and try again if you don't get 60 grams to begin with. Yeah, that's right. We can perform up to three tag maneuvers. We have three nitrogen bottles on board the spacecraft and each time we tag the surface, we uh, release one of those nitrogen bottles, and that stirs up the regolith on the surface, it fluidizes it, and it gets captured by the head. So we can perform that maneuver three times, but as soon as we have uh, confirmation that we actually do have a sample and it's over 60 grams, we will not perform any additional tag maneuvers, even though we could theoretically come back again to collect more material one, we want to keep the sample. We want to know where this sample came from on the asteroid. So we wouldn't want to pollute it with a second sample site. Mm -hmm. And it's not the safest thing to fly a spacecraft to within 11 feet of an asteroid. <laughs> so once we have our sample, we'd like to make sure we bring that home so that we can study it and not risk the spacecraft. So I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the maneuver that you guys do to actually measure your sample, because this has been something that's kind of fascinated me for a little bit. So like you said, you extend the the TAGSAM arm and then spin the spacecraft. And I guess you're, uh, my, my assumption is that you're putting in a certain amount of rotational, like delta V, and then seeing what your actual rotation speed is. Yeah, is that that's correct? exactly correct. And we've performed this maneuver a few times during outbound cruise already. 
which is interesting, uh, just that, for example, we are able to do this maneuver. Uh, the tag SAM is, was uh, stored inside of a launch container that had a panel over it. So during outbound cruise, we performed one of these sample mass measurement spins with the spacecraft, and then we ejected the cover so that we could release the arm. And after ejecting the cover, we spun the spacecraft again and were able to confirm through that change in rotational velocity that we had, in fact, ejected the cover and the cover weighed uh, basically exactly what we thought it should weigh. So we're actually working on a on a segment coming up in the future about I'm going to uh, probably spill some beans here, but uh, we're, <laughs> we're working on a segment about uh, how you measure uh, the amount of fuel that's in a vehicle. So how do you guys know how much fuel you have on board? Because that's, I mean, if you're looking, even though the arm is extended out, 60 grams is nothing. So you guys have to know how much propellant you have on board very, very precisely to be able to to do this maneuver. So how do you guys keep track of your fuel? It's actually one of the really big challenges, knowing exactly how much fuel is on board. Um, obviously, uh, Kepler just ran out of fuel, and they couldn't exactly predict down to the day mm -hmm. when that would happen. And that is the same problem on all spacecraft. Right. So what we mostly do is uh, when we loaded the propellant, we know precisely how much propellant we used. And then every time we fire our thrusters, whether it's our main engines or our attitude control thrusters, we keep track of the various pulses that the thruster used. And we know how much fuel can come out in each pulse. And it basically becomes a large math problem of, how much fuel could you have fired? And there's a range of error uh, within that. But as we were flying out to the asteroid, every time we perform a large maneuver, that's not fair to say, not every time, but after performing a number of large maneuvers, we have a prediction for how much fuel should be on board the spacecraft. And we actually perform sample mass measurement spins, both to determine how good we were at Forming that particular technique, but it also allowed us to verify how much fuel we had on board, since at that point, the only thing that should be leaving the spacecraft is fuel. So we perform sample mass measurements before and after our large trajectory maneuvers that had large delta V, and we were able to confirm that our prediction said this is how much fuel we have on board, and the sample mass measurement spin confirmed that we had that much fuel on board. So we're able to confirm that our math bookkeeping is accurate to within the accuracy of that particular type of maneuver. And that's how much fuel that we know we have. And then we have a propulsion team at Lockheed Martin whose job it is to keep track of all of that information. And we have a lot of flight heritage also. So this particular propulsion system is based on heritage systems. And we know how the fuel is going to move through the spacecraft. We know when we perform burns how the fuel is going to slosh inside the tank. And we're finding that OSIRIS-REx is following those models very well. And so that historical information allows us to predict how OSIRIS-REx is going to behave and how much fuel we'll have throughout the mission. Do you know how often uh, spacecraft get to double check their bookkeeping? Like, I mean, not every spacecraft has, has uh, built into the plan pirouettes to check its mass. I mean, like, <laughs> that's, that's very cool. Are, are you, you guys can't be the first people to do this, but I'm sure you're not. This isn't a super common thing. To yeah, do, right? I don't know how many other spacecraft have actually used this technique. I would also assume it's very few. There aren't many spacecraft that, like you said, perform pirouettes in space to verify. One of the other ways, though, that we can check uh, the amount of fuel we believe we have on board 
and other spacecraft definitely do this, is when we perform a burn, uh, particularly a large main engine burn, the fuel inside the tank sloshes because the fuel stays put and the spacecraft accelerates around that fuel and then slams into the fuel and sloshes in the tank. And as the fuel is sloshing, the accelerometers on board the spacecraft pick that up as it actually batters the spacecraft around a little. And we have to fire our attitude control thrusters to hold us on our burn vector. And the amount of loss you see or the amount of work the spacecraft has to do to control it on that vector actually can be worked out for how much fuel is inside the tank. So that's another way that we look at it. I know other spacecrafts do that as well, but I'm not certain what the error bars are on that sort of a measurement. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you're you, you somebody's very smart has come up with uh like one mathematical dis, uh you know like a formula where you can just plug in right. It's not like you guys are actually mo- doing liquid modeling, looking at how much is sloshing. It's just like oh, we used up this much propellant to keep ourselves on course, uh, right? Yeah, for the most part, we're using the bookkeeping method, but we actually do have a liquid slosh model of Osiris Rex. And part of that is also trying to determine, can we use those slosh models in the future to do a better job of predicting Mm. how much fuel is going to be used? So there's a lot of work on every single mission, at least that Lockheed Martin does, where we are constantly using old techniques and new techniques and seeing if we come up to the same answer. And it lets us dial in those models so future spacecraft can do a better job of predicting what may happen. Everybody loves to use new software and new techniques, but you got to make sure that they work. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about this arm. So I'd like to kind of rewind back to launch. So if OSIRIS-REx is a cube, the bottom face of the cube has got the propulsion system and the top face of the cube has got, among other science instruments, has got the sample return capsule, which almost looks like a satellite dish um, on top. But then the the arm kind of folds up along one side of the cube. Yeah, that's correct. It's folded up on the back side of the cube. So the side that is opposite of the high gain antenna. Ah, okay. And then, um, so you mentioned that the... Uh, that, that there's like a launch container, but that's that's just for the hand, right? The the arm is pretty much exposed, but then that sensitive. I, okay, I think of it as a snout because in my head, uh, Tag Sam sneezes onto the asteroid and picks up because of the nitrogen. So so the the hand is inside that launch container, but the arm is kind of like just inside the spacecraft, right? Yeah, the and it's not fully enclosed inside the spacecraft. So the arm is blanketed uh, with thermal blankets, but it is fully exposed to space. But there is kind of a little notch cut out of the spacecraft where the arm is tucked in. So it doesn't sit outside of the plane of the spacecraft because we have to fit inside the fairing. So you can't have this uh. arm hanging out. So it's kind of tucked into the spacecraft. But yes, the arm itself is exposed to space wrapped up in blankets, and then the head is trapped inside of the launch container. And that is for contamination control. We don't want anything that happens. But what's the most important thing about this mission is actually not that we're bringing back material from an asteroid, is that we're bringing back pristine material from an asteroid. So we don't want to affect this material at all. And we can talk about this later, but our spacecraft is one of the cleanest spacecraft to ever be launched from Earth. Our cleanliness protocols are stronger than even the ones they use when landing on Mars because we don't want to contaminate our sample. 
Wow. So during the launch process, you don't want to have all of the hydrogen fuel and everything else that comes with the launch possibly ending up on our heads, which we would then touch with the asteroid and bring back and it would get mixed in with the sample. So we hold the head inside of the launch container to keep mm -hmm. it as isolated from the launch environment as possible. So um, how are you protecting the head on the way to Bennu? Um, does it kind of nestle back inside that launch container? Yeah, so uh, what we've done now is we've released the cover of the launch container, but the container itself is still open to us. So we recently uh, furled out the arm and we took pictures of the TAGSAM head in the various sampling positions, as well as the imaging positions that we use mm -hmm. to visually verify that we have a sample in the head. And once we're done with that, we move the arm back to what we call the parked position, which puts the head back partially inside the launch container. It's not fully in there, but it takes it away from the possibility of getting like hydrazine fuel on it from particularly attitude control maneuvers that we do, um, because those can turn the spacecraft in essentially any direction. So with the head partially protected inside the cover, it keeps it as pristine as possible. And we always know that some contamination is going to get onto the head. Our goal is to minimize that. And to that end, we have a lot of witness plates on the TAGSAM itself. So there was a pair of them on the head while it was trapped inside the cover. And as soon as we removed the head from the launch container, uh, some plates snapped over top of those witness plates and sealed them. So no more contamination can get onto those plates. So when the head comes back to Earth, we can look at those plates and know precisely how much contamination got on during the launch process. We hope that it's zero, but if it's not zero, at least we can quantify it. Then there's another set of witness plates that are currently being exposed to space right now. And so any contamination that might happen as we're maneuvering the spacecraft or even when we fly in to actually perform the tag maneuver, uh, you could have contamination come off the spacecraft. Those witness plates will pick up that material, and then we can quantify how much of that happened. And then there's another set of plates inside the sample return capsule that keep track of any contamination that might happen during the return cruise uh, back mm -hmm. to Earth and during reentry. So we can add up all of those contaminants and know what is actually in the sample, but hopefully through the various techniques we use to protect the sample, it's a very low amount of contamination. That's really clever. And then the, the thing that really fascinates me is um, how do you get your sample from the arm into the return capsule? That was my question. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think that this is something that a, a lot of people have uh, sat awake at night trying to imagine. I know <laughs> I know I have both for uh, Osiris Rex, but also for like you know, Mars sample return, return missions. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah. So getting the sample into the sample return capsule is actually far more challenging than you would imagine. So our arm has just like your arm, it has, you have a shoulder an elbow and a wrist. Our arm has the same exact thing and it's able to articulate, but only in one direction. So you don't have side to side movement. You just have up and down. Once we have the sample and we verify that we have a sample, we open the sample return capsule. So it's hinged on one side. Uh, it kind of almost reminds me of like a 
James Bond in space movie where the spaceship opens up to swallow the craft that James Bond is in. But the sample return capsule opens up and then we are able to articulate the arm all the way into the SRC. But those angles to move in are actually a little bit challenging because the head is a very large head. And inside the sample return capsule is a ring that will receive that head. So we have to bring that head in and place it inside of that ring. And then we have some cams that lock down and trap that head in place. But getting the head into the SRC, even though you have this one axis of movement, you have to kind of thread the needle so that you don't accidentally strike the cover of the sample return capsule because it's got the heat shield on it and you certainly don't want to damage that. So we move it in and if we have a perfect tag and nothing goes wrong, then the we know exactly the length of the arm, we know where the head is, we can calculate the angles to get the arm into the right position. But we are touching an asteroid and it is possible that something could happen to our arm, like it could get slightly bent or after such a long journey, maybe some of our motors don't move as well as they do right now after launch. And so then we have to adapt to that situation and recalculate the angles and how to drive our motors to, to get this in. But once the TAGSAM head gets into the SRC, it uh, gets into this ring, these cams drop down and sort of lock it into place. And then we have to cut the head off, uh, which is process called decapitation and <laughs> we fire a bunch of uh, tube cutters and pyros that sever all connection of the head to the wrist so we have some uh, temperature monitors that are there we have the tube that guides the uh, nitrogen from the the bottles down the arm into the head we have to cut through those tubes and then we have to sever uh, bolts that are at the joint of the wrist that connects the head to the arm. So we fire all of these pyros and tube cutters and they shear off the head and then we back the arm out and then you just have sort of a stubby little arm and that arm we can take back and put it into the parked position and then the SRC top just closes right back down and the head is sitting there totally isolated from space now. Can you talk about the design decisions that went into designing that mechanism? Because obviously you want as much rigidity and strength, uh, you know, per kilogram as you can for a robotic arm, but you want severability and easy to sever materials if you're going to leave part of it behind. How, how are those decisions made and like, and, and what trade-offs were made? Yeah, it's probably not something that I'm the best person to talk about because I don't know all the design space decisions that were made. I do know that we worked on the TAGSAM arm at Lockheed Martin for 15 years from start of the idea to the wow. final conception. And I've seen many of the old designs of the arm. So there were a lot of different head shapes or different arm shapes. There's how would the gas flow through to stir up the regolith. Uh, I literally, it started being designed in somebody's garage with ping pong balls. And then it's developed into this uh, really elegant mm. solution. But uh, Lockheed Martin oversaw the development of this for 15 years. So a lot of decisions were made in that time. Uh, a lot of the materials, though, that we use on the spacecraft, uh, like bolts that we're going to sever or tubes that we're going to cut, uh, tend to come from heritage of things we've done on other missions where we've needed to cut through mm -hmm. wires or cut through a tube. 
So you use things that either our spacecraft or other space vehicles have already used just because you have uh, confidence that they're going to work. So there's nothing particularly special about them other than we are confident that when we fire a pyro, it will shear through all of the pieces of metal correctly. I'm a bit surprised that you have all these pyrotechnic explosions so close to the head, and you're not afraid of any kind of damage or contamination. I mean, it seems like in order to sever something like like any kind of a metal joint, it would require mm. you know a pretty good jolt, and that sounds kind of scary. Yeah, so actually that is a concern for us. So there's a couple of choices we've made regarding that. One is that inside of the sample return capsule are witness plates that have been completely kept free of the space environment. So when we closed the sample return capsule while we were down uh, processing before launch in Florida, we put in pristine plates and we closed the SRC. So the SRC will only be open just before we put the head in so that the only thing those witness plates should ever see is actually the pyrotechnics that fire. So whatever material hmm. comes out of those pyrotechnics, we will know exactly how much makes it onto the, the head. The other thing is there's different options you have in terms of frangibles and pyrotechnics that you can use in space uh, made of different materials. So we have ensured that the type that we use on our spacecraft will not cause a contamination that would give us uh, false readings in our sample. So if we find not that you would, but let's say we were to find metal flakes inside of our sample when it gets back to Earth. That's kind of okay because you know those metal flakes did not come from the asteroid. But one of the things that we're looking for in our sample is the signs of life. That's why we're going to asteroid Bennu is because it potentially has uh, the building blocks of life on it, such as amino acids or the elements that uh, chain up to become amino acids. So if we use a particular type of frangible that has uh, silicon in it, when the frangible fires, that silicon will actually end up in our sample and space radiation will break down silicon into something that looks very much like an amino acid. And that could give us a false positive of you have found an amino acid when in fact it came from the frangibles. So we yeah. avoid any of the materials in that sort of uh, explosive device that could give us the wrong type of false positive. And so hopefully any contamination we get is very easy to isolate and say, that was the frangible, just remove the piece of metal, keep studying the sample. Okay. I did not know that about, I mean, specifically about, mm -hmm. you know, like breaking down into amino acids and having to account for that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's one of the, actually the biggest challenges that we had on this mission was with that cleanliness requirements that we had while assembling the spacecraft we had to avoid materials that would break down in space. And one of the biggest problems for us was nylon. Nylon is in everything. Nylon was in our clean room suits. Nylon is in the tapes that we use. Nylon is in the straps that we use to keep uh, tools from falling on the spacecraft. And we couldn't have any of those because if nylon touches the spacecraft, it breaks down and also looks like an amino acid. So it was a really big challenge during the assembly of the spacecraft to isolate nylon, get it out of the clean room, or cover it with tapes that 
would uh, keep it from touching the spacecraft. It was uh, quite a challenge. Do you know anything about uh, trajectory getting to Bennu? Not a lot. I, I might be able to answer some specific questions, but uh, ish? yeah, okay. ish. Let me run something by you. So from what I understand, this was not a Hohmann transfer getting to Bennu, right? Were there passes by the Earth? Because it, it was more than a year getting there. Yeah, that's right. So in order to get to Bennu, we needed to do an Earth gravity assist. So we did a flyby of Earth almost a year to the date after launch. So we launched in a standard launch trajectory that put us in an orbit almost identical to Earth. And we were just leading Earth around the sun. And when we eventually came back around to Earth, what we used Earth's gravity to do is to change our speed a little, but primarily make a plane change. Because Bennu has a orbit period of 1.2 years around the sun, and it travels both inside and outside of Earth's orbit. So sometimes it's beyond Earth, sometimes it's a little bit closer, but it's inclined off the ecliptic a little bit. And so in order to make that ecliptical change, we use Earth to change us that way. And that's what really got us there. We could have fired our engines to go directly to Bennu, but it just would have used too much fuel that we didn't want to do, and we could just simply do a Earth gravity assist flyby. You're going to be in orbit of Bennu for a while, right? Like almost a year or something like that? We're there for a year and a half to two years. It does depend a little bit on the mission itself. So we are currently completing our approach phase to the asteroid. We're somewhere between 100 and 130 kilometers away from Bennu right now. We begin our really close-in operations starting on December 3rd. And then on December 31st, we enter orbit around Bennu. And then we study for a couple of years. Our actual tag event is supposed to happen on July 4th of 2020. And then we get back to Earth in 2023. Uh, but between that July 4th tag, we could stay at the asteroid up to March of 2021. So there's up to what is that, like nine months of time that we may stay at the asteroid doing additional studies, or we may find that we want to just come home immediately to bring that sample home. And part of that has to do with your geometry with Earth and the sun at the time that you finally determine that you have a sample. Uh, some geometries are just more fuel efficient to get home. So you said that you're going to be in orbit around the asteroid for something like a year or so, but obviously you can't really be in orbit because it's so small. I mean, I guess maybe you can. So how are you maintaining your position? So it's one of the biggest challenges of the OSIRIS-REx mission is how do you orbit this small of a body. Uh, we set records when we initially enter orbit because nobody has tried to orbit such a small body in space. And then we get even closer. So we just keep breaking records for how close one can get to such a small object. We are able to enter a orbit around the asteroid, even though it has a very small gravity field. The problem is that that orbit is not very stable. So if you're orbiting a large planet like any of the Mars orbiters, you can predict very well where you're going to be in the orbit days from now, even weeks from now, uh, with a high level of accuracy because the gravity field of a large planet is well understood. When we're orbiting around Bennu, our orbit begins to degrade the very moment it's set. So we have to 
uh, perform trim maneuvers to maintain our orbit every two to three days. Otherwise, our orbit will begin to process drift and will go out of plane that we're trying to maintain. So it's actually a very large challenge. No other mission has to update and perform as many burns constantly as we have to to maintain what looks like an orbit. But if we weren't performing those maneuvers, the orbit would degrade very quickly and we could end up being flung away from the asteroid or into it or end up on the dark side of the asteroid uh, within a week. And it could be very dangerous for our operations. So we have a lot of mechanisms in place to constantly monitor the spacecraft and make sure that we're staying where we need to for safety and being power positive and able to send our data back. How are you doing navigation? Are you mostly looking at, I'm sure you're using multiple methods, but are you using the, the asteroid itself to help tell you where you are? Or is it mostly looking at stars and the sun and that kind of thing? So during the initial approach, we're using uh, stars and the sun to determine where we are. So we have star trackers and our navigation team is performing uh, optical navigation. So we're taking pictures of the stars, but using our optical cameras as opposed to the spacecraft star trackers and they're determining where we are. The very first orbit that we do, that phase is called orbital A, that's what begins uh, on December 31st, is actually a time for the OPNAV team to transition from using star-based navigation to surface feature navigation. So we will actually be taking pictures wow. of the surface of Bennu, and that is how they will be determining where we are at all times, as well as that tells you how the gravity field is in flux around that object. And we do all of the navigation for the rest of the mission based on imagery of the surface of Bennu because it's much more precise. Wow. It's like, I mean, that's, you know, it, it's tiny. You shouldn't be able to do that, but you are. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I'm sure that as you're doing this, you're going to be characterizing the body more and more. But like, at what point are you going to be confident enough in your surface imagery to be able to transition? So uh, that's hopefully what the orbital A period gives us. And we have basically from, we have about a month to two months, January and February. We want to begin our detailed surveys of the asteroid surface in February of 2019. So once we enter that orbit, we are expecting that it will take us about a month to validate all of our systems and processes, know that we can navigate using this method and make that transition to the optical navigation. We will have started the information that allows us to make that transition during the phase called preliminary survey, which is about to start on December 3rd. And in preliminary survey, we do three flyovers of the North Pole of Bennu, one over the equator and one over the South Pole. And those particular flyovers are designed both to get our first looks of the asteroid, but also to begin the characterization of the gravity field of Bennu. So when we go into orbital A, we will already have an idea of what the gravity field looks like. And then the first couple weeks of orbital A, the spacecraft sits there very quietly. We don't do many operations during that time just so we can see how gravity is moving us around. And within uh, a week or two, we hope to be able to then make that transition to the off-nav, and then we can spend a couple of weeks using the off-nav technique of looking at the surface to determine where we are and just dial in that particular process. And a lot of that also has to do with just what are the exposure settings for the cameras when you're looking at an object like this to make sure that you can get the contrast that you need to 
determine where you are, as well as it very much depends on the surface and what it looks like. So if Bennu had turned out to be just like a cue ball and totally smooth, you would never be able to navigate with imagery because you wouldn't know where you are. From the mm -hmm. early pictures we have of Bennu up to this point, there are a lot of objects everywhere, which is a bit of a challenge for determining where we're going to actually tag the asteroid. But it does mean that optical navigation is going to be much better because there's so many interesting features on the surface of the asteroid. Uh, is there is there a lot of concern about um, finding a good place to do that sample? I don't know if I would use the word concern as much as excitement. Um, okay. As engineers, uh, we like <laughs> Fun it, yeah we like interesting challenges, and Bennu is going to be an interesting challenge, and I think. These first pictures we got of Bennu are not dissimilar from the first pictures that the Japanese got of Ryugu. You think you know what this object in space is going to look at. And I don't think we have ever visited an object in space where our pre-assumptions of it turned out to be true. So you arrive, you get these images, it's nothing like you imagined, and then it gets to be a fun problem of how are we going to find the spot mm. that we want to study what is this thing actually made of? So to us, it's actually just a much more interesting challenge. But I think the preliminary survey flyovers are going to give us a lot more detailed, close-in imagery. And that will start to help bound that problem of, okay, how are we going to go about finding the, the spot that we want to perform our tag maneuver? I had a question about the operations uh, while you're there. I noticed, right, in addition to, I guess, the sampling is kind of the crown jewel but you also have you know spectrometers you've got cameras you've got the lidar will you be able to do any of your operations in parallel or do you have to just kind of run it one at a time under specific conditions yeah actually we can run most of the instruments at the same time we have the ola lidar which is from the canadian space agency and then we also have uh, navigation lidars on board the spacecraft those two uh, instruments, we don't operate at the same time. Both, you don't want their signals to interfere with each other, as well as they are massive power hogs to fire the lasers. But other than that, most other instruments, we are able to operate at the same time. And so the, the science planning tends to target the same spot on Bennu, and they just fire each of the instruments one after another. The larger constraint on board the spacecraft is actually data volume. Uh, scientists love to take as much data as they can, and they do. They fill up all of their partitions mm -hmm. uh, with all of this amazing data, and then you have to downlink it before you can take more science, obviously. And so that tends to be the larger challenge. Is you can fire all the instruments at the same time, but how long does it take to get that data down? So sometimes we separate the operations where one camera will operate on one day and the other camera operates on the other day just so that you're trading off how the data is coming back to Earth. Uh, so so you guys basically ripped off Maven for your solar panel design. They had a pretty decent design. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, I thought that was going to get a laugh. Okay. Um, so the, the Maven spacecraft has got flappy, flappy uh, solar panels, and so does the Cyrus-Rex. I mean, it, its panels canter upwards. Right. Uh, can, can you tell us about why you would have solar panels that can't rotate to face the sun, but can flap up and down? Yeah, our solar panel design is really interesting. So we have 
two panels um, and they are on two axis gimbals so we can move them in and out and flap them up and down. When we initially looked at the design for this mission, um, you have to stay within certain cost limits uh, for any mission with NASA. And if we wanted to have fully articulated gimbaled uh, solar arrays, the cost just jumps astronomically. Uh, it's not the cost of the arrays, but it's the cost of the gimbals that move them. So by doing trade studies, we were able to determine that just having the two-axis gimbling is sufficient for us to maintain power generation on the spacecraft. So as we are flying in different mission phases, we don't constantly move the solar arrays, but we will move the arrays to a particular position for those five hours of science because that's what gives us the best power generation. And then when we flew to Earth to downlink the data, we have to move the solar arrays to a different position that's better power generation for uh, Earth points. And then there's a different solar array position for Sun point. But we really only need a handful of positions to stay power positive. But we have the really interesting position when we go into TAG that we actually fold our solar arrays up and uh, put them at this kind of slightly tilted angle. Um, it's best if you just look at an image of the TAG attitude to sort of envision this. But we needed our solar arrays to camp up out of position because when we come into contact with the asteroid, we know that we're going to stir up a lot of dust and regolith. And what we do not want to have happen is for that dust to land on the solar panels, stick there, and then decrease our power generation. So that particular gimbling that we have keeps them clear of all of that material while we're performing the tag maneuver. And I, I guess it would stick just from like static or something, because I don't know why else it, it would. I would think that you could probably just shrug it off or something, but I guess not. Yeah, the material in space has very strong uh, adhesion. Uh, just when it comes in contact with the surface of the spacecraft, it really adheres well. It's actually very difficult to get dust off of a space vehicle. And this is with the Mars rovers. They have been blessed by having uh, tornadoes and windstorms come through to blow the dust off of their solar panels. Otherwise, they would have died a long time ago. Fortunately, we don't have anything like that mm -hmm. in our area of operation. So once something is stuck to the spacecraft, it is truly stuck there and it's not really going to go away. Large particles are fine. They would bounce off the solar panel. They'll bounce off the spacecraft. But uh, dust and liquids, like when we fire our engines, there's always a little bit of hydrazine or unburned material that's out there. That will coalesce on the spacecraft and you just can't shake it off. It's with you for the rest of the ride. If I understood correctly, there might be the possibility after the sample acquisition to still use some of the instruments. Is there any concern about, you know, them getting kind of caked with the uh, regolith? Because they're on the downward facing yeah. side. So. Yeah, that's right. They're facing the asteroid when we come in contact with it. So you could potentially damage the instrument uh, by performing the tag maneuver if a rock were to come up and they hit the lens or if uh, some of the dust lands there, we will be using some of the instruments as we come in contact. So uh, we might be taking pictures of the landing site to give us context. It's possible that we could uh, fire the LIDAR to try and get a LIDAR map of the surface, both before and after we come in contact. So we can't turn the instruments off and put them into a protective state. Uh, 
some of the instruments will be off, but some of them we, we want to use for uh, science purposes. So there's always a small chance that they could get damaged during the maneuver. Uh, but we think that the, the chance of that is very low. And it's also why we don't perform the tag maneuver until we have met all of the science objectives of the mission. That way, just in case something does happen, we're completed with the mission, we can come home at that time. If we back away and the instruments are still functional and we decide that we want to perform additional studies, then that's fantastic. That's just extra bonus. Okay, so we've talked about going out to the asteroid. We've talked to doing talked about doing operations uh, at the asteroid. Coming home, uh, we still have to get this sample container back to Earth. And from what I understand, there's it, it's like a burn to leave the asteroid. Probably a couple of TCMs on the way home. But you're dropping this thing off uh, at interplanetary speeds, right? It's not like Osiris is gonna enter orbit of Earth and then delicately drop its its sample uh, into the atmosphere. No, quite the opposite. Yeah, we enter, we come back from the asteroid at interplanetary travel speeds and some number of hours away from Earth, and that is a bit dependent on the exact trajectory we're coming in, mm. we just release the capsule. So the SRC is uh, actually spring-loaded on the surface on the nadir deck of the spacecraft and when we release it those springs give it a little push and also induce a very slight spin so the capsule is spin stabilized it has no thrusters on it so it is a pure ballistic re-entry trajectory so the point at which we release it is expected mm -hmm. to make it land where we want on earth once the capsule is released we do a really hard right hand turn and we go back into orbit around the sun, uh, which, depending on whether or not there are funds and working instruments to do an extended mission, we could then perform another Earth gravity assist, or we could fly by the sun and go study something else, or we could decide that the mission is complete, in which case we may adjust ourselves to just burn up in the sun. Okay, so, so here on the podcast, we have two traditional final questions that we ask guests. Uh, the first one is, where would you like to be found in the internet? This is a chance to talk about any Twitter accounts, personal or professional, that you'd like to mention, or websites or anything like that. Oh, I wish I had some professional links that I could give out. I don't have anything for myself, but if you'd like to learn more about the mission, I recommend you go to asteroidmission.org, and that's where you can find the latest information about OSIRIS-REx, including pictures and scientific data. So Richard, if you could bring one thing with you into space, what would it be? I think I would probably bring a Kindle, because as amazing as a space is, and as much as I would enjoy looking out, Sometimes you just need to curl up with a good book. That is an awesome answer. <laughs> Can you name one book that you would have on that Kindle? Ooh, one book that I would have on that Kindle. You know, the thing is, I just really love a lot of trashy sci-fi, but I would definitely have anything <laughs> by Asimov or Heinlein. Just the ideas that they had about what space exploration would be back in the day is just fascinating. Can't go wrong there. All right. Uh, well, I guess that concludes it. So thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about the OSIRIS-REx mission. According to the website that you just pointed out, seven days, 22 hours, 33 minutes, and 27 seconds before the arrival. Yep. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking about the mission.
we have some upcoming spaceflight events. We've got quite a few of them. Uh, first up, we have a launch. Well, we're not sure exactly when it's launching, but what's our best guess? Yeah, right. So, so we're potentially looking at an Astra Space Rocket 2 launch. So this is, I mean, it's really kind of fuzzy here, but the Kodiak Daily Mirror posted an article that is titled Rocket Launch Window Announced for November 28th through 30th. So we're going to assume that this is Astra. We're going to assume that this is Rocket 2, um, but potentially this launch could be happening uh, this week. So keep an eye out for that. And then next up on November 28th, uh, once again, it's Falcon 9 Block 5 with the SSO-A mission. So I guess that was delayed once again uh, with its massive array of satellites uh, launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Uh, and that's going to be on the 28th at 1831 and 47 seconds UTC. So maybe this time that will lift off. We also have PSLV XL launching the HISIS, which is a small Earth observation satellite developed by ISRO called the Hyperspectral Imaging Spectrometer. And this will be launching on November 29th at 0530 UTC with a launch window from 0400 to 0800 UTC, uh, launching out of the Satish Dawan Space Center first launch pad. And then after that, we have a really exciting one for uh, some people. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. We have a Soyuz FG flying Soyuz MS-11. So of course, this is the return to flight for uh, for Soyuz. And this is uh, Expedition 59, or it'll, it'll be starting Expedition 59 when it gets there. So the two people on board, uh, I'm sorry, three people on board are Oleg Kononenko, uh, I think this is his second or third trip up to ISS. No, his third trip up to ISS, I believe. Uh, CSA astronaut uh, David St. Jacques and then uh, Anne McLean from NASA. This is going to be flying on December 3rd at 11.31 hours UTC. So next up on December 4th uh, is a Falcon 9 Block 5, this time with SpaceX CRS-16. Uh, so that is, you know, of course, the launch of a Dragon spacecraft. And this is its 15th cargo delivery mission to the International Space Station from, uh, obviously, Cape Canaveral. The liftoff time is 1838 UTC. And then once again, that's on December 4th. So check that out or maybe even go to the launch if you're able to do so. And finally, finally, we have an Ariane 5 ECA, which will be delivering GSAT-11 and GeoCompSat-2A to orbit. Um, the latter being a South Korean geostationary meteorological satellite. And this launch will take place on December 4th at 2037 UTC, uh, flying out of Karoo. All right. So at long last, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Yeah, quite a few of them. <laughs> and so at long last, I guess we will we will do over the show. Uh, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd. Here he comes for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. That is it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.